everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Today, we will bring you a special episode in honor of the holiday of Sukkot, a conversation about the book of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. But before we get to that conversation, a word about our upcoming series on the book of Breshit, a reminder that our Parsha episodes drop on the Sunday before the Parsha is read. The series on Breshit is titled Chosenness and Choices. The first 11 chapters of Breshit address universal struggles surrounding morality, the establishment of civilization, and establishing proper boundaries between heaven and earth. If chapter 10 compiles the descendants of Noah and their settlement of land, water, and nomadic existence, by the end of chapter 11, the focus is narrowed to the family of Avram. Imagine a spotlight before the start of a play circling around the stage to finally settle upon a table and chairs at its center. God chooses Avram. Why? Well, according to the plain verse, we don't really know, which is why the Midrash fills in so many missing details. What we do know is that he is charged with representing a moral standard and a relationship with God unlike any other before him. The book of Rashid is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, maybe Cain, Noah, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and his sons, but these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make, and it is a nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we will be exploring in the coming episodes on Breshit. Upon which decisions do the unfolding events hinge? What do these choices teach us about Torah, and what do they reflect about ourselves? Why does God choose these particular messengers, and what moral religious program is he trying to cultivate in the patriarchal period? These are some of the questions that will guide these discussions. Looking forward to seeing you there. Join us this year at Hakafot Shniot in the Matan building with the amazing Odelia Berlin. Uh, that will be taking place, of course, at Motzei Simchat Torah in the Matan building in Rashbag 30. Looking forward to seeing you there. Back to today's topic. Hello to David Kerwin, fellow Efrat resident and author of Kohelet, A Map to Eden, which recently came out through Magid Books and Aleph Beta Press, and which can be purchased at? The Koren Publisher website. Amazing. David, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, which is slightly unusual when it comes to Tanakh books coming out? I think it is a little unusual, um, hopefully not too unusual. Uh, I, I am not a rabbi. I'm not an academic. I'm just someone who really loves uh, learning Torah. I uh, studied at this point many years ago in uh, a very special yeshiva, Yeshivat Kibbutz Reti and Kibbutz Ein Surim. It was a unique place with a kind of a symphony of different voices, a lot of different opinions, encouraging their students to challenge ideas, to question, to be very curious. And when I left yeshiva, I didn't go into you know, any sort of Judaic studies, but I continued to love to learn Torah and to study those, uh, to delve into questions that caught my eye or they caused me to be curious. I would occasionally write uh, essays here and there. I have a blog where I write about language issues. Um, but this was, I never thought about writing a book. Um, I did become a devotee of uh, Rabbi Foreman and Aleph Beta about uh, 10 years or so ago. I really um, enjoyed his approach to the study of Tanakh. And became kind of close with him. We sort of uh, learned together with him on, on different occasions. And then one year, 
it was about six years ago, it'll be six years ago this Sukkot, I came home from Shul. Actually, I wasn't even home. I was in a, somebody else's home, so I didn't even have my regular library with me. And I just said, I can't believe I'm not getting anything out of this uh, Kohelet book. <laughs> for so many years, it was so difficult for me. It was, um, it was tedious. It wasn't like any of the other Megillot, in the sense there, was not even, there wasn't like a real narrative like with Ruth or Esther, and there wasn't a, you know, a, a, a framework narrative like Echa or, or Shira Shirim. One year, I actually broke my glasses because I hit my head in the shender from falling asleep during, <laughs> during Kohelet. <laughs> so that year I came home, I said, there must be more to it. So I tried to look at it with the eyes of intertextuality, the um, comparing of different texts to see how they shed light on one another, and something that Aleph Bader and Rabbi Foreman focus on a lot. And suddenly the parallels to the opening of, of, of Sefer Breshit, both linguistically and thematically, kind of jumped off the page. Um, I started doing more research, and the insights kept on coming. In a way, I didn't feel like I was writing it. I felt like I was pulling the curtain away from something that was already there. Right. I think, uh, first of all, the image of falling asleep during Kohelet, I, I mean, I probably can count on one hand how many times I've physically been present at Kohelet in the past few years. It's very long. It's very repetitive. And, you know, in the summer, we had a conversation with uh, with Rabbi Dr. Josh Berman about Echa, which is another really, really, really tough book. And I think Kohelet, as you said, may even take the cake, meaning the language itself may be slightly simpler, but but the, the wisdom style and the somewhat unclear messaging that the book presents us with is very, very difficult. I think even the wisdom style literature, which we see bits of in, in Yirmiyahu, we have you know, we have verses here and there, and of course we have Iyov, uh, it's also a style of thinking and sharing is one that's not always so relevant to the way that we think now. But I think that it's a gift what you've given, both in that you're sort of modeling for the world that you know, what we would call lay study can become professional study, right? What you've done is something obviously much greater than just someone who was reading in shul. And and also that the greatest thing we could do is to take something that genuinely challenges us and say, I want to shed light in this because if I'm having a hard time, I think a lot of people must be having a hard time. So, so thank you as part of the public for the gift that you've given us. I really, really appreciate that. And, you know, you mentioned Rabbi Foreman and being a student of his, but I guess maybe in your own words, can you tell us a little bit about the method of study? Because I think that that method of study really actually heavily defines the way your book develops. It has a very particular style. It sort of takes many verses from Kohelet and, and brings us linguistically and even associatively to other texts in, in Tanakh. So tell us a little bit about that method. In almost everything I write about, I always try to start with a question. It could be a Torah, a shir, or, or an essay, or in this case, a book. So something is usually bothering me about a text internally or in comparison to other texts. And I hope that the answer to that question will provide an interesting lesson. And that will be the point of what I'm writing about. But I, start, I always try to start with a question. I think that makes it more interesting for, for the reader or the listener. But I do my best to try not to let that end lesson or other preconceived notions that I have dictate in advance about how to research the question. I just try to follow the text and see where it takes me. And sometimes that can lead to seemingly contradictory results. Uh, for example, I once wrote an essay about how it seemed the Torah was criticizing Yaakov for not conquering Canaan after returning from Haran. But another essay of mine shows how that when they vote or later Israel didn't reach out to the non-Jews, opportunities were missed. So it might seem that those two approaches were in contrast with each other, but I, I need to remain tech, faithful to what the text is telling me. Um, and then, of course, sometimes further investigation can lead to reconciliation of those two different ideas. So when it came to Kohelet, I first noticed those linguistic parallels. I just came home and I saw the verses that reminded me of Sefer Breshit. 
So I have um, probably the most obvious one I would say is is Kohelet per Gimel pasuk chaf akol olech el makom echad akol ayav mina afar v'kol shavel afar, which is very much it reminds us of Bereshit um, Gimel, where it talks about kilakachta mina afar tav el afar tashuv. That that one really stuck out. You came from dust and you will return. Exactly, from dust. exactly. Um, I can talk a little later about uh, Hevel, the repetition of the word Hevel, and, and Hevel of Kain and Hevel. There, there are many others, um, but it was just, I, I didn't even have, it was on, it was on Chag. I couldn't even write it down. Afterwards, after, after Chag was over, I started writing these things down, um, and I got dozens of them. Uh, some were stronger, and some were uh, maybe a little strong, but overall, the picture seemed to be that it was really being pointed to, and I, I just, but I didn't know what that meant, right? I didn't know... Um, I, I've been in, exposed to the intertextual methodology through Aleph Beta, so I had a feeling that something was happening, but I wasn't sure where to go. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, for those who are interested in doing this kind of research on their own, at the time, six years ago, I don't think this existed, but on the Alatora website, there's a tool called Tanakh Lab, where you can... They still in, have it. Right, they still have it now, but they didn't have it then. Oh, I, okay. I think this myself. They, you can put two texts in, and it will show you where the um, roots or, or words appear in both texts, making it very easy to sometimes spot these intertextual parallels. Say also that, uh, that Safari's website also has, they have like a web, a webbing system like that also. Oh, okay. They also have a tool I like I that. I wasn't aware. But yeah. That's great. I want to also think with you about when we web text and we sort of try and connect them, the question of intentionality, meaning when are those connections intentional? When can it just be common language? So... After looking at the textual and linguistic evidence, I came to the conclusion that this wasn't coincidental. But then I need to tackle the bigger challenge, what does it all mean? And for that, I started to consider the thematic and narrative parallels between Adam Rishon and Shlomo Mela. So why don't we move on a little bit to the actual content in the book? Obviously, we want everyone to purchase it. We won't give away too much. But, uh, but what exactly are you speaking about other than the common words of Hevel, right, and, and the name Adam? What, what are some of these parallels? And, and also, as you said, what's most significant is what's significant about these parallels, right? What are we learning? What are we taking away from that? So why don't we get a little bit more into, into that element of the book? Okay, so again, there's, there's a lot of linguistic parallels. I don't know if I'm going to go into all of them here. We mentioned about the going to dust and the returning to dust. There's a lot of imagery about rivers and snakes and work and a lot of these things that either appear in the life of Adam and in the garden. There's some creation imagery in in chapter two. There's all discussion of how uh, the Kohelet builds and plants and all these things using a lot of very same verbs that appear in in the opening chapters of Rashid. And there's a lot of of, um, imagery that is parallel to the story of Cain and Hevel. Uh, we talk about uh, Kenyan a little bit. We, talk, we definitely talk about um, the word Hevel is, is repeat, repeated. There's issues of uh, death and, and violence and two versus one and all kinds of things that, that recall the stories of Cain and Hevel. And there's also a lot of thematic uh, parallels. The, the, the themes of um, you know, inevitability of death uh, is certainly relevant to the punishment after uh, after the expulsion from Gan Eden, the question of why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper would be relevant to the story of Cain and Hevel. Work is unending and doesn't necessarily provide any benefit. That's a lot of the way that Adam had to work. Uh, question about how man relates to women, that also has to do with, with Adam and Chad. There's a lot of these themes that show up as well, besides just the linguistic concepts. One of the questions also is about, you know, um, about Hevel. Um, I think that that's something that's, that's very strong as well. And I think this, this also goes back to a certain degree to, to the structure of the book. You mentioned about how it's, it's confusing a little bit. The structure isn't always the, the way it's laid out in, in, other, in other biblical books. 
So what, what made me think about the, the repetitive use of the word hevel was that the major punishment, the most significant punishment that Adam and Chava received after expulsion from the garden was the introduction of death into the world. Some discussion about whether it was actually a punishment, but it certainly seems to be when you eat it, you will die, and that's what, that's what happens later on. However, the first person to die as a result of their sin was not Adam, and it wasn't Chava, it was their son Hevel. And the imagery that I have in my head, I know it's a little somber, but if you, if you go to like the Shiva, morning house, you would, uh, let's say, somebody sitting shiva for, for a, an elderly relative. So oftentimes they'll tell you stories in a, you know, a very orderly way. They'll talk about their youth and talk about later on. And it feels like, you know, you're hearing a story. And it's... But if you go to the house of a shiva for someone sitting for morning for their child, it would not nearly have that level of, of order. And certainly, and this I've never done, would be if, you went to, if, you, if someone was sitting shiva for a child, they felt responsible for their death for some reason, they would probably be unconsolable and really all over the place, in a sense. And that's what I kind of feel Kohelet is. And that's, and to a degree, the repetition of the word hevel, 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 what's the point of everything, is that imagery of, of Adam just saying, you know, everything I've done, what was the point of anything I did? It's all hevel. It, it's all for hevel. It all is hevel. So that was some of the linguistic parallels that I noticed. Oh, that's, first of all, it's a very powerful image of, I know, our speaker is Kohelet, which will speak about his relationship with Shlomo HaMelech, but it's really this image of Adam Rishon sort of mourning or looking at the world around him and saying, how does this world make any sense? That's very interesting. I Meaning looking at Kohelet as sort of a postscript because uh, to the story of Gan Eden, because in ter- how to understand those curses is very interesting. Uh, many look at them and say, the story of Gan Eden is really a description of how the world is the way it is, right? Looking at the the main elements of our life, difficult work, women with childbearing and child rearing, and our relationship with the creatures in the world, the the curses, so to speak, I'm doing air quotes with those, the, the curses are really just a description of the way that our life functions. And what you're saying is maybe maybe Kohelet is sort of this philosophical response and saying, well, we received these things. We received hard work. We received death. We received, uh, I mean, it doesn't speak as much about childhood. You can imagine he was less involved in that part of, our, part of life. But this is sort of the philosophical pool to deal with those curses, so to speak, or really just the way that, that life functions, whether it started from a curse or just the way the world developed. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, you mentioned, for example, some I think about wisdom literature briefly earlier. And, you know, if you compare um, Kohelet to Mishle, both of which are attributed to, to Shlomo Mela, you know, you, Mishle is like, you know, you do this, you do X, and Y will result. And Kohelet is even more difficult because he's saying you'll do X. Yeah, it's not orderly. And, and, but even if you do X, it might be Y sometimes, and sometimes it's going to be Z, and, and maybe, you know, sometimes the good will work, and sometimes it won't, and what's the point? There's no direct correlation. So I don't know if he's necessarily giving um, philosophical answers. No, not he, answers, right. right. No, he's Questions, just yeah. question, he's questioning Questions, the world, yeah. right? Yeah, and as yeah. you said, if you imagine somebody who, God forbid, and lost a child, which, you know, we have many people in the world who have, you you're and there are many things that unravel people and right. leave them answerless right and he says many times i was rereading kohelet as we were preparing for this conversation and i was moved also by how many psukim i really should like have memorized because i you know i'll quote them from some other psychologist but they're right here (laughs) in tanakh and and just the as you said the lack of predictability the unpredictability of the world is something that really comes through very strongly in kohelet so i think that's a really interesting frame now i'm thinking of kohelet uh, sorry shlomo or adam rishon is sort of 
you know, responding to this world, which is now lacking any clear order like it was in Eden and, and thinking, you know, what do we do with this place? So, so to go back to, to some of the, the ideas, if we sort of touch upon some of the, the meaning, right, the significance of these, is there any sort of, of conclusion or sort of a wholeness that we can make of, of elements of Kohelet based on its relationship with the story of Gan Eden? I think we can. I think to, to, to approach that, I need to give a little more background about what, um, what I think the, the, my thesis isn't about what I think was really going on with Kohelet, what, what these parallels are really coming to say. So I kind of came to the conclusion that the author, uh, in this case, I'll, Shalom, we can go into that in a minute, is, is, you can say channeling, reflecting, echoing, whatever the, whatever the verb is, um, the life of Adam Rishon. And the, the parallels between Adam Rishon and Shlomo are significant. Um, they both had a, a universal scope, unlike almost any other biblical characters. I mean, Adam was the only person, so he was certainly universal. And Shlomo, you know, his wisdom was known all over the world, and, he, and people came from all over the world to pray in the Big Dash, and so he had this universal scope. Um, and uh, they both had an incredible intimacy with God that is really unparalleled in terms of their being God's special place, whether it was Adam in the garden or Shlomo in the Beit HaMikdash, uh, being able to be being given things by God in a way that no one else is really receiving. And of course, they both had this, this downfall, this uh, based on, you know, their own sins. And, and then throughout the book, I, I tried to find, you know, what is the cause of the downfall? I think that Kohelet is pointing to it to a large degree. It's the search for knowledge. Now, this isn't just like academic knowledge, but it's a little more, um, subjective, judgmental knowledge. In other words, de- 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 uh, deciding what the world is. You know, the, the, if you talk about, and, and this has been discussed by every you know commentator and philosopher, you know, since probably since the Tanakh was written. But you know, what was the eighth dot tovra? Was it what, what exactly it represent? How could somebody be punished for eating from a tree of knowledge of good and evil? What, knowledge is bad. But uh, the Rambam's approach was was one of the ones that spoke to me that it wasn't really about the difference between truth and falsehood, but between knowledge about what is good and what is evil and being able to decide those... Um, yeah, moral discernment. The moral discernment, exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, I ended up discovering that those those parallels applied to, to, to Shlomo. Uh, it mentions in, in Kohelet, certainly he was somebody who searched for wisdom and received wisdom, but where did that wisdom take him? Adam searched the tree of knowledge and, and where did that take him? Um, one of the things I noticed in the book also, which I haven't mentioned so far, was a parallel to the story of the spies. Again, linguistic evidence. One key word that really uh, I, I couldn't ignore was the use of the, root, the word tor, the tor, tough of reish, which means to search, but it has, it's only used in a very few special locations in Tanakh and has a lot of meaning. And besides in Kohelet, where it appears a few times, it also appears in the story of the spies, which led me to parallels between the story of spies along with Adam Shlomo. And the story of the spies is the classic example of a search for knowledge, which wasn't just, they were supposed to be objective reporting, but they ended up being subjective judges. Um, and that, that judgment was what led to, led to their failure. I think a lot of the problem was that Shlomo also was acting as a judge. There's a little footnote in the book, which is interesting, talking about how maybe Shlomo shouldn't have been a judge when he was just supposed to be acting the king. These are all, this is all the parallels that lead to the idea of, instead of judging the world, instead of acting, uh, deciding you know better than, you know, God who's giving you this, whether it's the mitzvah to Adam or the Torah or whatever it is, um, you're going to be the one to decide what, you know, was right and what is wrong. Uh, famously, Shlomo was told that, you know, he in the, in the Gemara, but I think it's shot about, you know, there's, there's limits, uh, limitations on the king. And Shlomo says, no, I can, I can handle it. I don't need, these don't apply to me. That was a judgment of his on his own that he, he applied uh, the limitations on horses and women and gold. He said, I can handle it. And, and that was clearly not true because in the end, that was what led to the downfall of his of his kingdom. So, w- would you say that there's a distinction between a search for knowledge and 
a curiosity about the world, meaning there's something about like the actual search to acquire knowledge that that creates biases that are dangerous. Is that the difference you're talking about? Um, I, I don't think it's really just a question of curiosity. Or I, I would say exploration, curiosity, to me, they're like the same right, word. Right. So again, you, you can, I mean, the, the parallel of the story of the spies, I think, is the one that really kind of makes it a little bit easier to understand. It's a little harder with the story of Adam and Shlomo to know what exactly, like, what was the chapter called, what, what's wrong with the search for knowledge. But when you look at the story of the spies, that's a, that's a pretty good model. If, had they just gone objectively reported, they were supposed to find out you know, were the cities, you know, how, you know, fort, uh, fortified or not, and, and what was happening in the land and all the, and, and all the information that was legitimate and, and encouraged. That was why they had the mission. But to make the conclusions based on that, when the conclusions weren't, weren't requested, that's, that's where the danger can be. That's not to say that we never have a, a, cha- a chance to evaluate things on our own. But since we have a religious framework where we're provided with moral guidance, we have to at some point decide, okay, this is not necessarily for us to decide, um, even if we on our own might think that something is good or something is bad. We have we have to have those limits. I think that's by the way one of the main lessons of of, of uh, Breshit is that you know you have the Avot and they didn't have any external guidance about the Torah. That's the less that's why we need the Torah in the following books because it wasn't working out for them being able to try to figure out all, all these things on their own. Okay, so that that was sort of a, a corollary to we were sort of discussing a little bit more about the significance of these parallels. So one you're saying is that it reflects about the purpose of knowledge in this world or how far we should be searching and seeking and that sometimes we reach a boundary and say this is this is a clear boundary. By the way, I'll even say, I know I mentioned it way earlier when I was giving an introduction to our coming series, but the first 11 chapters of, of the book of Breshit also deeply explores the concept of boundaries. What's the boundary between heaven and earth? How do we separate the whole confusion between the heavenly beings and the earthly beings having some sort of copulation, right? That there is there's these boundaries that we are constantly trying to to create and of course you said the Torah lays these boundaries out very very clearly Another question I want to just touch upon is this question of identifying Kohelet as, as Shlomo HaMelech and even Adam in the book as Adam HaRishon, which you do very clearly. Those are exegetical choices because many definitely of on the more academic scale uh, and not even so I was reading uh, the Ho'il Moshe who I'm now forgetting his name but he's an Italian Parshan from the, I believe the 19th century you know says oh well some people think that Kohelet is Shlomo but as you mentioned straight out in the book there are some questions about the identification of Kohelet as Shlomo because some of the descriptions of him don't necessarily match who Shlomo was so I'm just curious about the that decision that you made in the book and it also it has great impact in terms of how you see the relationship between the texts of of uh, of, of Eden, of other stories in the Torah, and and with the Book of Kohelet, sure, um, they're both good questions about both Adam and Shlomo. I think I'll um, I'll address Shlomo first because they're kind of different kinds of questions. I think that the content of Kohelet, in my eyes, clearly points to Shlomo. Uh, the book opens by saying that Kohelet, the son of David, king in Yerushalayim, and later says, "I was king of all Israel in Yerushalayim," and and the only son of David was to become king was Shlomo, and the only Davidic king through the law of Israel was Shlomo. So that, in, in, in those two psukim, certainly points to him. But much more importantly, Kohelet describes a wise king, a very wealthy king with many wives who built extensively, and that's like essential to the personality of the king described in Kohelet, and no one else fits uh, that description as much as, as Shlomo. 
I do want to say that I mentioned I have like a, a blog that I write about uh, Hebrew language. I'm very familiar with the different layers of Hebrew language. It's something that definitely fascinates me. And I'm aware that many of the words appear in Kohelet are, are common only in later Hebrew, almost rabbinic Hebrew uh, or Aramaic and Persian borrowings. Um, and there are those who, based on that, look for, uh, uh, attribute the um, Kohelet to later kings or even some... Yeah, that one never bothers me so much because we have editing that happens in later generations. Exactly. That one never really bothers and, me. And that's the thing, is that Chazal attributed... Yeah. But I say for the people who say, how can you possibly have, you know, not be for... Not by Shlomo, well, Chazal, first of all, say that Chizkiah wrote Kohelet. Sure. He wrote yeah. it down. Uh, there's, even a, there's even a saying in a vote the Rabbi Natan that says it was, it was, it's hard to know exactly what it means, but essentially they, the, and Sheikh Knesset Gdolan were the ones who were involved yeah. in the book. Yeah, so because I'll speak heavily. Was, the word editing gets, is very sensitive, right? Because of Torah and documentary hypothesis. But when it comes to books of Nivim and Ketuvim, we, we, Chazal say very clearly that there were some generations of editing. Right. So for me, what I, I, I'm not, I'm trying to differentiate between the origin and the meaning. I, yeah. I, I'm following what I'm considering author's intent. I think we're supposed to read Kohelet as mm-hmm. Shlomo. Okay. And you might be curious why Shlomo's name not used then. That's something that people ask. Um, I think maybe because the book, unlike the others associated with him, like Shira Shira Mishle, are reflect his failures. And by not doing that, it kind of hides his shame uh, and that of his house. And this might be a reason, by the way, that the his failures are not mentioned in Divrei Amin, right? Because that's yeah. where they're trying to make the, the David a little better. So yeah. this might be in a similar kind of style. Also, you know, a kind of a later book. Um, so I think that um, we're supposed to identify um, Kohelet with Shlomo. And the lessons of Shlomo and Adam are, are very similar. As I mentioned, they have similar scopes and similar parallels. And that's really important to understanding what's going on. As far as Adam, it's a little bit different. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we talk about intertextuality. There's kind of two types of intertextuality you can do. Um, you can do intertextuality within the same text. And, you know, like Alf Bader, Rabbi Foreman does this uh, masterfully with, you know, you'll find something in, let's say, you know, two different texts in Midbar, and you'll, you, or, you know, you'll find that they're comparing each other and you wonder why they're both using the same words. Or, you know, even something as simple as, like, I mentioned Latour. So it's used in uh, the Story of the Spies and in the um, Mitzvah of TC, which follows it. And that's a, that's a type of intertextuality. They're not necessarily related, but they are, you know, you can see they're, locked, they're connected through those words. A different type of intertextuality is when you have a, a later book which calls back to an earlier one. Uh, very famously, um, Esther recalls the story of Yosef, both using similar words and also similar themes. Um, I don't think that by any means that when they wrote the story of Yosef, they were writing, they were reflecting on the story of Esther, but certainly when they were writing the story of Esther, they were looking back on the story of Yosef. And in a way, it's kind of like a midrash. Mm-hmm. You know, you're telling a story. It's true. You're telling the story of Esther, you're telling the story in the, in the court, but you're also saying there are parallels here you can learn from by using those words. I could chose any words, and I chose the words to reflect on the earlier story. So I think that's going on here. I think when they're writing Kohelet, they're writing it as Shlomo. They're talking about what's going on in Shlomo's kingdom, but by using words that, that echo Bereshit, they're saying, oh, there's someone else who had similar stories, and you can learn similar lessons. So I don't think that when they use every time they use the word Adam they're necessarily saying that is Adam Rishon but they're using the word Adam and it's significant the, um, the someone did a little study and noted that um, in the entire Tanakh the text with the highest frequency the highest percentage of the use of the words Adam are in Kohelet and the opening four chapters of Breshit and um, that's significant and I think so I think it's like a literary device um, which allows the meaning of both humans in general Kol Adam, along with Adam Rishon, who was, in a sense, that prototype of, of all of all future humans. Thank you for clarifying that, because I think that you really sort of struck like a very fine balance between intentionality and a literary device, right? Because I think that it's hard to say that it's 
completely intentional in all places, as you said, but that you can't ignore the fact that by using that word, which is very unique, that it creates associations with another text. I think that's a really, really important piece. And I also think it's important because it shed lights in general on how to study Tanakh. I think it's always would be very careful. And I like to sort of err on the side of caution when we talk about intentionality. But I think that the idea of a literary device is something that can draw our attention to meaning without over, without over assuming some of the authorial intents. I guess I'm also curious if sort of looking at at all that you speak about in Kohelet, if we can sort of circle back to the holiday that were that is upon us, why why read this book uh, around Sukkot? You know, there are some there are some wild cards in Tanakh, right? There's a wild card like Eov. It's never going to get read on any Chag. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious your take on on the idea of why Kohelet, this really sort of sombering explorative philosophical book with not necessarily any clear answers is one that we read at the opening of our new year okay so this is also i have to be, I have to be careful too about this too the historical reasons why kohelet was chosen to be read in sukkot are kind of uh in, in fog a little bit even whether it was first considered the gilad's a little bit considered fog all these things are historical questions which i find fascinating they're a little less relevant to what I'm talking about in the book, although I do have a chapter where I discuss Sukkot. What I will say is, and this, this is my answer, is, you know, if I'm on the stand, if I had to choose a Megillah to read on Sukkot, I would choose Kohelet. And so that's where all, that's my starting point. Not necessarily why it was chosen. It maybe was just chosen because all the other four Megillot fit the other Chagim really well, and this is the last one left, but it's, I think it fits it to a T. And I think one of the, there's a lot of explanations given to why it fits. It talks about Hakel being done on Sukkot. You talk about... Um, things about the harvest, all kinds of things that are going on. For me, the thing that most spoke to me, especially in the context of what I wrote about, is looking about looking at Shlomo HaMelech himself. The, um, if you consider the, the laws of the king, which Shlomo uh, famously uh, violated, there are three prohibitions. Uh, the prohibitions are to not amass uh, gold, to not collect horses, and to not have too many wives, and he, he violated all of those. You have in... Um, in earlier in Sefer Devarim, I think in Parshat Vedchanan, a similar passage where the people are warned, they're about to enter the land, and they're warned about the dangers of affluence and abundance. And that passage ends up quoting, warning the people about very, a lot of these very similar you know, dangers. They're going to have gold, they're going to have cattle and horses and things. And so, in a way, the, the, the restrictions of the king reflect restrictions of the people. However, there's one additional uh, danger that the people are warned about uh, encountering that the king is not prohibited against, and that's building houses. They're said you're going to build these batim, uh, you know, these these nice houses, and you're, they're filled with everything, and you're going to, you know, that's going to make you think that you're that um, it all belongs to you, and you, and you're going to end up forgetting God because of the houses. Shlomo is not, and the kings in general are not prohibited from building houses. The truth is, interestingly, except with one curious exception, from Throughout the entire Tanakh, you, from the, from Breshit until David and Shlomo, you don't find anyone building houses. It's not, it's not a verb of, you like talking about if someone builds a house, but there's no stories about building houses except until you get to David and Shlomo. Apparently, building a house is associated with, with kingdom, and that's what he does. David builds his house, and he and the monarchy is called the house, and then Shlomo builds his house, and he builds There's more Sukim spent on Shlomo's home than there is about the Beit Mikdash. Right. And he, built, <laughs> he, took, he took it for longer. He built it uh, for a longer. longer time, yeah. and size There's mm-hmm. a lot of issues going on there. That house, that house, that those houses that Shlomo built, ended up not being sufficient to ha- to prevent him from forgetting God. And if anything, it 
to a large degree, led to his downfall. Uh, there's different things about Shlomo's downfall, you know, what, the issues of idolatry that went on with his wives, but certainly we see that the people were upset with his building project because he was, during the course of the building, he was oppressing, the people were being oppressed. Uh, he mentioned this later when, uh, with the story of uh, Yerevan. And um, it ended up being, the house was an issue. God himself says, I don't need a house. I'm happy in a tent. You want a house? It's on you. A lot of people forget that verse. I think it's one of the most, when I first, I, I, I maybe I noticed it before, but when I read it for this book, I was like, wow, like God, the Beit HaMikdash is something we wanted. It's a, it's a very strong parallel to the request, the request for a kingdom, which most people are very familiar with, how, how people ask Shul uh, for a king, and he was angry with them, and it wasn't something he wanted. God seems to have kind of a similar response to asking for Beit HaMikdash. You should have been happy with a tent. You should, you know, I don't need it. The, the house the house you want is for you, not for me. And if you, if you, become so confident in this house, it's going to cause um, problems, forgetting God, and so on. And I think ultimately that's what's going on with Sukkot. In other words, Sukkot is our chance to, to step, at the, step out of our house, dafka at the, the harvest season, when we're most likely to feel um, ownership on all of our possessions, which, which Kohelet goes into how futile all that work is for, for these possessions, and say, okay, I'm not even going to be in my house. I'm going to be outside of everything. And that is an association with uh, we're like a little miniature version of Shlomo in that sense. So we're, we're, we're trying to mitigate those dangers that affluence can, can lead to. So I think that's, the, that's one of the main lessons of... Uh, so we're, we're essentially trying to, to, to play out what Shlomo wasn't able to, to exercise in his life, right? right? I think if I could just reflect personally, and we're sitting now in my new home that I moved into like a month ago, and it's a really interesting piece. I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of security that certainly owning a home brings. I'm not even talking about the physical structure, but I guess I really understand that that possibility of a home that could be beautiful and we could sort of forget about what's what's the ikar, what's tafel, right? what's our, our main focus and what's our secondary focus. I guess that I think as, as humans, if we hold in our hands all of the uncertainty and the questions that we have from the book of Kohelet, I don't think any house, as big as it, as it is, is really ever going to solve those. Meaning there's something that's humbling in itself about the, the lack of clarity that we have in, in the world we live. Uh, and so I think that to me, that's ultimately sort of the greatest balance against any sort of, of false sense of security that materialism can give us. Right. There's, there's a famous verse, which I quote in the, in the chapter, I talk about Sukkot uh, in Tehillim, which, you know, what, there's only two uh, Prakim of Tehillim that are, are attributors, not attributed, but associated with Shlomo. Mm-hmm. And one of them says that if, uh, unless, the, unless God builds the house, uh, it's builders labor in vain. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that we don't, you know, it's, it's who, of all the people, you wouldn't necessarily assume Shlomo, because Shlomo's going to build the house, but it's, it's really, we, we need to feel vulnerable. I know I, I listened to you know, your, your, many of the um, uh, recordings for, for Save the Rhyme were talking about this, this need to feel vulnerable. What's the, what's the, less, what's mo, what's the less of the emotional speech? Is you have to remember who, who you're dependent on. You have to remember you're still vulnerable. You're, not, you're about to enter the land and you think you're in, you're in control of everything. The, that, that, that feeling of vulnerability is really essential for dependence on God, which leads to the moral behavior that the Torah is trying to encourage. Yeah, and I guess what I'm saying is that as I get older, I feel like that vulnerability is inescapable the longer I'm living on this planet with just like open eyes and heart, right? I feel like the older I get, the more I see 
the the perplexing nature of the world we live in of the things people are experiencing things i might experience and to me part of growing up i feel like my trajectory has been to sort of feel more humbled by the questions in the world so it's an interesting dynamic in how people experience it differently i, I guess as we wind down the conversation i want to just ask you sort of some sort of lightning round questions i.e short answer questions I guess after you know studying this book for a number of years, what what is your favorite pasuk in the book of Kohelet? Wow, um, that's a good question. Uh, it's not one I really considered when I was writing it. Um, I suppose if I had to pick one, it would probably be the fam- the very famous second to last verse that we repeat: "Sof davar kol nishmat Elohim yirat mitzvatav yishmor kizeh kol adam." Fear God, listen to God, and fear and fear God and and his do his mitzvot, because that is. Every person, how you describe, you know, uh, that is the Adam. Um, I used to like it because it seemed much more optimistic and straightforward than the rest of Megillah, and also because it meant the Megillah was almost over. <laughs> yeah. Um, but now, and I know that some some scholars think it was like tacked on at the very end to negate any problematic kind of yeah. less religious messages mm-hmm. that content that came before. But I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it was actually the message that the book was is aiming towards the entire time. The author is aiming for. If the whole book of Kohelet is looking back at the futility of all of Shlomo's achievements, building wealth, wisdom, all that, all he really wanted was to have just listened to God's commandments and to return that intimacy that he shared that they shared when he was much younger. That he just he looked, he's looking back at his life. You can imagine a scenario where somebody has a relationship, um, let's say you know a marriage or something, and and so and and one is. Uh, betrays the spouse and the, mar- the, the the relationship is broken and then the rest of the life is thinking you know what did I gain I've, I betrayed it for that I had so much in front of me and I lost it that's what that's what the thing I just should have wished I just wish I had kept the intimacy it's not about keeping its vote like you know following the Shulchan Aruch although maybe that is the case but it's talking about it's more than that it's just it's, it's returning to that level of intimacy and that's I think that's something Adam that called Ha'adam probably felt the same way. He was also expelled from the garden because he didn't listen to God and because he ignored the commandments. So instead of being a jarring detour from the rest of the Kohelet, I think it's the point of the whole book. And so that's something that always feels, kind of fills, fills me with a little bit of hope. Hmm. And is that sort of what you think would be of like the bigger lessons you get from the book? Is, is Dafka that feeling of hope after there's so many chapters of sort of exasperated, you know, what am I doing here? And also feeling, you very much feel Kohelet uh, being in, he's really in battle with like his with his nature, right? There's some people who who walk around this planet and they're they're sort of at peace with what their nature is, and they don't. And there are other people that really are are really constantly in dialogue or, or in a lot of tension with what their natural tendencies are in this world. They would want to be calmer, but they're naturally much more agitated, right? Sort of in Kohelet, you feel that you feel sort of like someone who who sort of isn't at peace with with themselves. So yeah, I think that's. That's the nature of tshuva, right? I mean, we're probably you're probably listening to this, I assume, after Rosh Hashanah Kippur, but the, but it's, it's not okay. over yet. Tshuva is a whole is a year round process. process. But but the but the focus on tshuva, and certainly if you read the essays about tshuva, it's like the whole thing examining your life and talking about where, how to fix things. And I think that that's maybe the biggest lesson of Kohelet is that it's not too late to do tshuva, right? Um, it's interesting that we never read about Shlomo's reaction to the punishment that he receives from God in in Malachim um, chapter 11. Did he try to argue back like Shaul did? Did he accept it like David did? You know, we don't know. He's, he's completely silent. Um, 
and that silence is kind of deafening. You know, Chazal goes to the point to say that he was uh, dethroned, that he was as are Adam and Chava, meaning they also right? don't they don't get the exactly they don't the get thing. The response. We don't hear anything about them. We don't th- we don't see what Adam felt. We don't know what he felt about. You know, he didn't we, he didn't speak almost another word after the expulsion. We don't know about how he felt. You know, what was his relationship with Chava like? What what did he feel about Cain and Hevel? What did he think about life outside the garden? We don't have any evidence of this. So Shlomo, this this goes back to the idea that Shlomo. I think Kohelet is Shlomo's tshuva. It's him basically saying, here's what you could do to avoid the mistakes. A lot of the contradictions that I think people focus on in the book of Kohelet, I think to me, don't come across as contradictions at all. It's a degree of like irony or cynicism or something. He's like saying, oh, you know, simcha is great. And he said, but then he'll say, what's the point of simcha? Or building is great. What's the point of building? He's saying, you know, I look back, you might think it's great, but you know, what's really the point? And and so um, he he wants to, to look back and see what he could have um, done differently. And he knows that Adam would have been in a similar position. So I think that that's actually the, this book is giving you a chance to realize even someone like Shlomo, even someone like Adam, who might have fallen from you know, the pinnacle to the very bottom, is someone you can still return. Uh, I think you can, you can make that, um, you can make that, you can do that shuva and you can learn those lessons. And Koala certainly would be the case of someone who's saying, read my book, learn my lessons, and maybe you wanted to making those same mistakes. I love that. David, thank you so much for this conversation. Totally a pleasure to have you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.